Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. Like the work of all great military thinkers, scholars and practitioners of warfare continue to debate the significance and merit of John Boyd's ideas. Colonel Boyd is the legendary Air Force fighter pilot who, in addition to revolutionizing aerial combat tactics and the way aircraft are designed, also changed the way Americans think about conflict and warfare. He profoundly influenced the Marine Corps' maneuver warfare doctrine and helped shape the ground campaign that led to the rapid defeat of the Iraqi army during the 1991 Gulf War. While it is difficult to make the case that John Boyd is not an important military thinker, although there are people who try, his proper place in the hierarchy of military thought and theory is a contentious issue. In recent years, several scholars began claiming him as an air power theorist. Air power theory has evolved over the past century in both method and scope, but at its core still remains the basic idea that an air force when commanded by airmen, bombing targets selected by airmen, can influence the outcome of a conflict at the strategic level, independent of ground or naval forces. David Fadok, an air force officer who retired as a lieutenant general, tried to link the work of John Boyd with a genuine air power theorist, John Warden, in his 1995 thesis for the School of Advanced Air Power Studies. Fadok argues that John Boyd's theory of seeking the enemy's defeat through mental and moral paralysis could be accomplished by employing John Warden's Five Rings theory, where the Air Force attacks targets starting at the leadership ring in the center and working out through communications networks, infrastructure, the population, and fielded military forces. Noted professor of strategy and international relations Colin Gray made a nearly identical argument while confidently proclaiming John Boyd as an air power theorist in his 2012 book, Air Power for Strategic Effect. The military historian Dr. Charles Oliviero is careful to point out that Boyd's ideas are not limited to air power theory, but he nonetheless also makes the link between his work and that of John Warden. This is all a bit of a curious turnaround, since the Air Force spent the first 20 years after Boyd's 1975 retirement trying to erase his memory. Like Sun Tzu and Clausewitz, John Boyd can't personally refute undue characterizations of his work anymore. But unlike the earlier theorists, many of Colonel Boyd's closest associates are still here to set the record straight. One such individual is Franklin Chuck Spinney. Chuck first met John Boyd in 1973 when, as a young captain, the Air Force assigned Spinney to work for Boyd in the Pentagon. The two collaborated together for the next quarter century. Spinney worked closely with Boyd after the latter's retirement, when Boyd first labored to understand how people create knowledge. From this study, Boyd expanded his work into a deep intellectual dive to understand conflict in broad terms. Today, Spinney is often called one of Boyd's acolytes, a term he doesn't particularly like, which is a select group of remarkable individuals that include Tom Christie, Pierre Spray, Jim Burton, and others. The lives of all of these individuals intertwined with Boyd's in profound ways and help craft the work still debated by military thinkers today and likely long into the future. I don't like the word mentor. Uh, uh, in a way, uh, you could say he was a mentor, but, but basically I, I, I always thought of myself as sort of an understudy and, and uh, at least initially, and, and eventually I had sort of a quasi-peer relationship with him. But that took time. I was an understudy. I was, I was doing a lot more learning than he, from him than he was from me. 
uh, although he learned, he learned from from Ray and me, and that was one of the things that was interesting. The way he, the way he worked was, you know, by constantly talking and doing things, and in our case, inspiring us to read a lot of the same stuff he was reading, then talking about it incessantly. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it was it, it became almost impossible to tell where ideas started. You know, and, and it. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't have happened without John. So in the end, you got to give him the credit. But, but, uh, uh, and I think Ray would agree with that. Uh, uh, you know, we would we would do things, and something it would just sort of bubble out, and it, and it would emerge. And, you know, give you an example that took place later. This was uh, in the mid '80s. I had this idea. I won't go into the details because they aren't important. And I went to John and said, "What do you think about this? I'm thinking about doing some work in this." He said, "It's bullshit. Don't do it." It's a waste of time. And I didn't think it was a waste of time. I thought he was wrong. So I continued doing it. I got more and more excited. And I go back into him a couple days later. And I said, John, I, I really like you to look at this idea. And, and I explained it to him. He said, that's bullshit, Chuck. You can't just get off of it. You know, go away. You know, don't, don't waste your time on it. And uh, I did that three times, you know, with basically the same response. The next week, he comes into my office and he slaps me on the shoulder and goes, Tiger, I got a great idea. And he spouts back exactly what I was telling what I was telling him. And I said, John, that's what I've been telling you. That's my idea, not your idea. He says, no, I thought of it myself. <laughs> and it just shows you how tight, uh, how tight uh, uh, the working relationship got. You know, we were inside each other's head in different ways. Pierre and John were that way too, in a different different ways. Tom and John were that way in different ways. And he basically, that was his modus operandi, I think, uh, if my speculation is, he, he basically tapped into people that he liked and respected. And, and uh, 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 he got inside their heads, they got inside his head, and it sort of was like a web that was created. And it was like a creative web. And uh, you know, who's to say it wasn't John's idea? You know, I only got it because of my association with him. So in a way, he w it was his idea. But the point was, there was the birthing was was complex and obscure, and uh, and that was sort of the way we all worked at that time. So you know, I I basically went to PA and E in 1977, in March of 77. So I'd only been out of the Pentagon for about 18 months, and. Uh, <clears throat> And then I stayed there till I retired in 2003, in, in, uh, on, June, on May 30th, 2003. And uh, so I was there the whole time John was. And uh, I, I worked with him for a total of about, well, our association was close for, for, for the rest of his life. He died in 1997. So it was about 27 years or so that we were, that we were close friends. The, the genesis of this podcast and why I wanted to do this one was in the in the course of of my reading of military history and and particularly the the history of military thought and theory I, I've come across a couple of scholars who make the assertion that John Boyd was an air power theorist now in your close associations developing uh, developing ideas together over 27 years uh, did how would you classify John Boyd? Was was he an air power theorist? Uh, well, I would say no, and and uh, the reason I would say no is uh, 
during my association, he, I was on the tail end of the lightweight fighter development program and the, and the uh, uh, EM work that he did. And John was, you could call John a theoretician of, of air-to-air -air combat. He wrote the definitive manual on air-to-air -air combat in the late 1950s or around 1960 uh, called the Aerial Attack Study. He was an instructor at the, he's one of the first instructors at the Fighter Weapons School in, out at Nellis. And uh, he stayed there pretty much until he came to Washington. Uh, he went to graduate school and then he came to Washington, I think. Uh, so in that sense, he was an air power uh, uh, theorist. In a very limited sense, in a very limited sense, you could say that he was an air power theoretician, but it was limited to tactical fighters and fighter tactics. And in fact, if you go back to his original development of the energy maneuverability theory, which revolutionized the way we designed aircraft, and which was why I was interested in it, uh, it completely changed what had been done literally since the Wright brothers uh, for designing these airplanes. Uh, he originally developed the EM theory as a way to come up with better tactics, and I think the primary motivating factor was because we were doing so badly in Vietnam. He was thinking, how can we, how can we best use the air for the F four uh, to fight the more maneuverable MiG MiG seventeen and MiG nineteen, uh, and even MiG twenty one uh, in in Vietnam? Because our exchange ratios were pretty poor in that war and they they got better as the war went on but they they, they weren't anything like korea and uh uh john john figured out how he could use the em to describe the places in the entire flight envelope where the f4 had an advantage over the make which wasn't many and uh and and where it definitely didn't want to be in the flight envelope so that was his view and somewhere along the line, he came up with the idea, well, hell, if I can do this for existing planes, why don't I try to do it for a paper airplane and we can build a truly superior plane? I'm oversimplifying, but that's basically what happened. And the EM is now remembered much more for its technical, its technical uh, uh, contributions to the design, to, to designers. Uh, so, you can only call him an air power theorist in the most limited sense of the term. Basically, air-to-air -air tactics. And you have to remember also that if you look at air power theory, air power theory has always subordinated tactical aviation to what they call strategic aviation and deep, deep interdiction bombing. So to be an air power theorist and not be uh, involved in strategic bombing theory or deep interdiction bombing theory is, is, uh, is an oxymoronic. And John had nothing to do with those. And he despised, uh, he despised uh, bombers in general. He despised the planes that were, we were using for in interdiction in general. He thought it was a complete waste of time. But uh, uh, when he retired from the Air Force, he basically was probably the leading theoretician on tactical fighter design and to a, maybe to a lesser extent on combat tactics. He had been out of that business since 1960, so you know it was, it was old time by then. So you know I would never call him an air power theorist because air power theory is about strategic bombing and, and deep interdiction bombing, which was just a variation on strategic bombing.
and John John had nothing to do with that. And I never heard him once refer, you know, talk about it. He didn't care about it. You know, it uh, he just did not care about it. And and you can see that in the development of his of his uh, uh, theories of conflict. There isn't anything about air power in there other than a couple of like references to close air support which, while he was an active duty officer, he also didn't care about. You know, he, he wasn't interested in the A-10. When I met him, he could care less about the A-10. You know, he, it was just another thing. And um, the last thing that John really worked on that related in any way to the Air Force and what uh, you might generically call air power were the anomalies of the lightweight fighter fly-off and where he came up with his ideas of asymmetric fast transients. Now, a lot of people think, one reason why they think he's an air power theorist is the asymmetric fast transients took him back to some of the stuff he had done in the 86. It enabled him to redefine why the F-86 did so well in Korea. But it was in a very, when, if, if you look at how he did it, it was in a very generic sense. He also, you know, in, in his briefings, he combined it, he used it uh, in reference to the Entebbe raid and uh, uh, Blitzkrieg, Blitzkrieg. So, so uh, uh, people who think that the, the getting inside your OODA loop and, and doing uh, that type of work is basically a fighter pilot's idea, that's, that's it turned out a fighter pilot came up with it, but it's, it's not fighter pilot thinking, or it certainly wasn't at the time, maybe now. Uh, and and uh, but it did help him the, the the anomalies in the in the lightweight fighter fly off and I, I was there at the time I saw this evolving um, no one could explain why the F-16 was so favored uh, in the fly off all the pilots voted unanimously that it was a better plane than the YF-17 and the EM calculations basically said it should have been closer there should have been places where the 17 was better and other he comes up with the idea of fast transients, which he thought maybe could be folded into uh, EM theory. It turned out it never really got off the ground. He was working a little bit with NASA in 77, and there was a guy in our office who was helping him, who was an EM, who, who did a lot of work on energy maneuverability on his own. And uh, But that just petered out, and John John's interests weren't really in it. And once he came up with the idea of the fast transients and explained it in that briefing, uh, that was that. He, he uh, basically went forward and didn't look back. And uh, the other thing that happened about that time, it was a little, yeah, it was about that time, was there was a debate over how big the wing should be on the F-16. Uh, the original lightweight fighter was an air-to-air combat fighter, and it had very light wing loading. When the Air Force bought it, they decided that essentially they didn't want a competitor to the F-15, but uh, in air to air. But they decided we're going to sell this thing on on uh, uh, the basis that it'll be a replacement for the F-4, and so it's got to have a bombing capability. And eventually, it had nuclear. They put nuclear wiring in it uh, after promising not to. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> as they added, they put in a bigger radar. They put in lots more bells and whistles in the electronic system. That made the nose bigger. That hurt its maneuverability. Uh, they also increased the wing loading because the plane got heavier. That hurt its maneuverability. John got into he John got into a big debate within 
within the Air Force. This is just before he retired over, over uh, <clears throat> how much they should increase the size of the wing. Uh, and I, I can't remember the exact numbers. I think the YF-16 may have had 275 square feet. I may be wrong on this, uh, Peril now. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> the engineering process, the process of engineering development had put 300 square feet on the wing. Boyd thought they should go to 350. Uh, he ended up getting rolled and they went to 325. And as far as John was doing, it destroyed the airplane. And after that decision, and I might add, uh, one of his protégés, a guy named Mike Lowe, at that time a lieutenant colonel who was the flight test director, basically flipped on him. Uh, instead of being a supporter of the original lightweight fighter concept, he went along with the school solution of going to 350 square uh, square feet. And, and Boyd basically cut off all, all communication with him afterward. Uh, after the lightweight, after that wing debate, John basically washed his hands of the Air Force. He washed his hands of aviation, and his work after that uh, was, uh, to the extent that aviation might have been involved, it was uh, very peripheral. He did some. He, he did support us when we were coming up with some original blitz fight of the blitz fighter work. Uh, Burton, Jim Burton was doing that, and I was doing that, and Pierre was doing that. And as this was in the early '80s or maybe late '70s, and. Uh, uh, but he he uh, uh, he he just didn't have uh, uh, anything to do with the Air Force after that. Although he gave lots of briefings to anybody, he, he was briefing his theories on conflict to everybody uh, in the Air Force who would listen, as well as the Navy, the Marines, and anyone else. Uh, so so uh, he he uh, uh, he he wasn't he did not he did not. He wasn't petulant in the sense that he uh, uh, he said, "Okay, you guys screwed me, fuck you." He didn't do that. Uh, he he basically just erased them, you know. And to the extent that he dealt with them, it was based on personal friendships he had had, had over the years, or if people were interested in his theory of conflict, which had nothing to do with strategic theory, uh, Air Force strategic theory. And in fact, if you look at strategic bombing and interdiction bombing, which are the two sacred cows of strategic air, air, air power theory. Uh, uh, Boyd's work is in direct contradiction of the eff effectiveness of those theories. Uh, you know, and he, he basically, uh, to the extent he said everything, he just thought it was BS. But he, you know, even in the 80s and, and uh, early 90s, we didn't talk about it too much. And when he was involved with Cheney, uh, in the first Gulf War where they were talking about, you know, how to go about Desert Storm. It, I don't think, now I can't say for sure, because I figured out he was involved with Cheney while it was going on. Uh, but to my, to the best of my knowledge, he was working with ground strategy there. Uh, and I don't think he had anything to do with air power strategy. He, uh, uh, I was on a team trying to do a lessons learned study uh, for a while, I got thrown off <laughs> because I was being too critical of some things. But uh, I was on a team uh, right after the war doing a lessons learned thing. And uh, uh, John, I, I was talking to John a little bit. And he just didn't give a crap. You know, he, he wasn't interested in the air war. 
Really? He, yeah. Yeah. He, he so just, he didn't care. I mean, he didn't, he thought stealth, he, he, he wasn't impressed by stealth, but you know, you didn't get into these long technical discussions of why it was, why it didn't deliver its, on its promises like, like Pierre might or Tom might or uh, Chuck Myers might have. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, of the reformers, uh, John, John pretty much didn't say much about it. I don't remember. Uh, he helped Burton a little bit on his initial paper on the uh, on the Gulf War, uh, but I did too, you know. And and uh, at that time, John's John's relationship to Cheney and how he influenced the redesign of the plan, which I assume you know about. Right. It it. Uh, uh, that wasn't known. Now, to give you an idea of how secret it was, John would be in Washington, and I never knew. I, I'm not sure Pierre knew. Maybe he Cause, did. Because he was living in Florida at that time. He was living in Florida, exactly. But I, I uh, uh, in the build-up to the war, I was looking at the deployments and listening to what they were talking about, and I had talked to Warden a little bit, uh, John Warden, and he gave me an idea of what they were thinking about in terms of bombing. And uh, I... Uh, uh, I decided, you know, I've been studying this stuff of John's, the patterns of conflict, his theory of conflict for so long. How would I do it if I was in charge? I just wanted to see how well I understood John's stuff. I didn't, I was under no illusions. I was any kind of strategic thinker. And uh, uh, so I put together this plan and I ended up with two options. And, and the second option was basically dictated by the fact there's a huge sand dune that goes sort of parallel to the Kuwaiti-Iraqi uh, border. And I was thinking maybe they can't get through there. Maybe that's why they can't do a single envelopment. And so I, one option was, was basically a feint and a thrust by the Marine Corps. Uh, uh, you know, so instead of having the big, the big arm going, it would be a, uh, a feint up there, try to get them to move over and have the Marine Corps go basically where they went. Uh, that was my other option. And then my other option was the more conventional one, which was big single in that development with the Marine Corps being a pinning operation. Uh, and so I was explaining it to John over the phone. <laughs> and this is why I'm going into this. I, I, I talk to him on the phone probably every other day or so. And I'm explaining this thing on the phone. I said, I just, I'm just trying it. You know, I got under no illusions. I'm an expert in this shit. And, uh, uh, but this is how I, I'm thinking we should do it. And I explained to him the, the first one, and I said, that's not, uh, I said, I don't, I explained that, I explained the Marine Corps one, and then I explained the, fir the first one, the envelopment and the sand, and the reason, and that's sand dune. And I had gotten that from uh, uh, the British guy in the, in the 20s who had been up in that area, the, the British fighter who used the balloon tires on the Model Ts to go over that sand dune. And he was saying how they couldn't even follow each other in the tracks. Turns out there's some roads through that sand dune, and, and uh, uh, I knew they were, but I figured they could put those out of commission, and because uh, they were a setup for a single envelopment. I mean, with just inviting them. And uh, uh, anyway, I started talking about both of them, and I explained the one that they actually settled on, and John gets really quiet, and he goes, Chuck. He says, under no circumstances are you to talk about this to anybody. <laughs> and he said it in a way that was extremely threatening. That's the only time in the entire period that I knew him that I heard this tone of voice. He and I had had arguments, and, and I probably 
of the people who were close to him, I may have had the most. We all we all greatly admired him. Don't get me wrong, but but uh, I probably had the the worst arguments with him. It, I just am a more argumentative person. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, this was different. <laughs> And I said to myself, I hung up and I said, I'll be goddamned, he's working with Cheney. And see, I knew he knew <laughs> Cheney because I was in a meeting with Cheney and, and, and John and Tom. And they all knew each other. I, I knew that. And, and, uh, and I knew Pierre knew Cheney at the time. You know, so I, you know, I, we didn't talk about it, but, but uh, 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 when, when they tried to fire me after my uh, 83 congressional testimony, Cheney was one of the guys who intervened to stop it. You know, so, you know, we, we, we knew about all this shit. And then and I said, holy shit, he's talking to Cheney. <laughs> I said, I got to shut up. Boy, he was pissed. He wasn't pissed. He would just, he, he wanted to shut me down. And he did. I, I just went silent after that. Right. I think I destroyed the papers. I don't even think I have them anymore. <laughs> so, that, but this is interesting because you were at, at the time, as these plans were unfolding, you basically knew both the architects of the air war and the ground war because you had also had some conversations with well, John Warden. I, I didn't have much. I, he came down to my office one day. We spent an afternoon together, and uh, uh, he didn't talk too much about it. I mean, I could figure out what they were up to. And uh, I'm not sure exactly why he came down to see me. It was his initiative. And uh, uh, generally when I get a call I'd like to come down and talk to you about my ideas. I would just say, sure, come on, do it. Let's do it. Good. And we talked to Warden, and and I had I had uh, a very uh, uh, mixed mixed uh, reaction to Warden. He uh, number one, I felt he was extremely sincere, and I liked him personally. I also liked him because he was one of the few Air Force officers I ever met that was interested interested in applying. A some sort of doctrinal, a theoretical concept of, of doctrine uh, to an actual problem. Most of the most of the time, you talk to Air Force people, all they have is a technical solution. And Warden wasn't that way. And I thought, you know, the guy is. I disagreed with everything he said, <laughs> you know. But I but I liked him, and it really I really admired that he was he was trying to do that. He was trying to do it. I thought his theory was extremely primitive, and I didn't think it was as well developed as the theory that they developed at the Air Corps Tactical School in the 1930s, uh, uh, which was the industrial web theory to bomb Germany or to bomb an industrial power. Uh, I think they, they were focusing on Germany, but, but it could be applied generally. And, and of course, it got, it got perverted over the years uh, at, in, during Korea and Vietnam and uh, Kosovo and uh, the first Gulf War. And the second Gulf War, uh, and even the Syrian War. I mean, it, it's essentially what we're doing now, uh, in uh, with these drones and these targeted hits on 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 tribal leaders, which are taking out wedding parties and you know having all sorts of counterproductive effects, uh, is basically the theory of the 1930s. Uh, and the critical nodes have gone from ball bearing works down to individual tri tribal leaders, but the thinking hasn't changed a bit. Uh, and what that does is that leads to this huge tech technological approach to war. Warden had this much more general theory, which he called the five rings, and you know, with leadership at the center, and then he, I can't even remember him. And it really wasn't well defined at all. 
and you know it basically it was an argument for decapitation which you know people have been talking about from day one you know that's there was nothing new there he had a different way of looking at it but what i liked about him was that he was sincere and he was trying to do something he went over there uh that was the only time i talked to him and it was probably about three four hours and uh <clears throat> it went over there uh he went over and he basically got run out because the bomber guys uh led by that black hole in the air force or whatever they called them that uh, they had this cell somewhere on the air staff that was project checkmate i think yeah i think that was the name they uh uh they they basically looked at that and it, it didn't have enough airplanes from their standpoint didn't have anywhere near the tonnage he had something like 80 some targets that he had picked now i didn't get that aspect of when i talked to him he was much more general when i talked to him i've learned about that since then and they uh, uh in fact it, his plan was nicknamed it was called uh, uh instant thunder but they nicknamed it instant blunder and uh uh, basically, he was pushed out, and uh, one of the ringleaders uh, was a guy named Dave Deptula, who uh, at that time was a lieutenant colonel, and uh, <clears throat> uh, he basically built that into a career, so he retired as a three-star. Uh, I can tell you uh, with, the, uh, with absolute certainty that when, when we were doing the lessons learned thing this is one reason why i got kicked off the team we were doing the lessons learned team he was he was feeding he was blowing smoke up our ass on the uh stealth and i finally the thing that the thing that drove everybody nuts was was when i finally said okay the only way we can come to grips with this thing is to get the ato and including the special instructions the spins and deptola deptola sent us the ato uh but no spins we finally got the spins, and of course, then we saw all the jammer support and all the crap that went on to support the 117s. So, you know, he, he basically, you know, to say he lied out of his teeth, you can't really say that. I couldn't pin him down on anything, but it was definitely in deception mode. Right. And, and uh, uh, I was quite disgusted with him as, as it was. I basically never had anything to do with him afterward. Of course, he's never had anything to do with me, so... I'm sure the feeling's mutual, right? <laughs> so I'm again. There's a there's a big effort to link the work of John Boyd and John Warden today. Do you is is there's, there a connection? Is it a valid? Argument? No, it's ridiculous. It's it's totally ridiculous. Warden's Warden stuff is basically standard. It's a variation of standard air power theory that goes back to Billy Mitchell. John's stuff is nothing like that. Uh, <clears throat> there's nothing about OODA loops to the extent that he is talking about taking decapitation on his five rings. Uh, that's interfering with the decision cycle, but that doesn't take any great insight. I mean, obviously you're interfering with the decision cycle if you can take out the top guy. Uh, John's, John's theory of the OODA loop is far more subtle than that. And, uh, uh, there's absolutely nothing there, and in fact, the kind of the kind of bombing that you end up doing with the air with standard air power theory, even if you were doing the Warden version, uh, which did not get done, uh, uh, basically became so predictable. Uh, the enemy 
the enemy's OODA loops were, were easy to form, and, and, and God knows, even if you had killed Saddam Hussein, they, they could have continued fighting, uh, at least for a while. You know, there, there were problems, the, you know, because of the way Saddam governed, that, you know, there might have been a lot of internal insurrection and stuff like that that would have, would have come into being, that, that would have broken, broken down the Iraqis. But, but uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the, the subtlety of John's work on getting inside the decision cycle and, and the idea of blowing up the decision cycle and, and blowing up all the support nodes to it are just, they're, they're just, there's no overlap. You can't even draw a Venn diagram where you have a little bit of overlap on those things. There's none whatsoever. And so anybody who says that, that they're in bed together in any way is just nonsense. Okay. If, if Colonel Boyd was sitting here today and we were, and I, and I was, and I was to ask him, how would you classify yourself? If we think about all the military thinkers through history, what do you, what do you think you would say to that? I probably wouldn't answer it. I, he'd probably deflect the question. Uh, John, in many ways, was uh, John was a very emotional person. A lot of times, he hid his emotions. He was loud and obstreperous and confrontational, but he was also an emotional person. And at a deeper level, he was a modest person. Uh, he didn't go around bragging about his achievements. He bragged about pull, some of the stunts he pulled off, but like I never heard him brag per se about energy maneuverability, which was a, which no one would disagree with being a major breakthrough type achievement. Uh, when I first when I first read the report, I was absolutely astounded at its elegance and beautiful simplicity. And uh, John John just he he wasn't a braggart, and and so if he was going, I don't think he would compare himself with those guys. Uh, if if I was going to compare him, sure. Uh, if you go through his work. If you go through his work and study his mentality and the way he went through personal conflicts as well as the way he studied conflict, I would say he is a reincarnation of a Sun Tzu. Uh, now, Chet Richards would also include Musashi, the, uh, uh, the famous uh, samurai yeah, Japanese sword samurai. fighter. Japanese, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sword fighter. Uh, and, and Sun Tzu and Musashi had a lot of overlap. Uh, but he, uh, he would never say that himself. One reason why I say that, if you look at the work, if you look at what he says in his briefings and you look at who he critiques and who he doesn't critique, Sun Tzu is not critiqued at all. He basically says, this is what Sun Tzu said. He, 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 uh, uh, he doesn't say he was right. He doesn't say he was wrong. He said, this is what he said and this is how we can apply it today. That's, that's a very, very cryptic summary of, of how it goes in that briefing. But I, w I would say, if I was comparing him, I would say the only one that I would compare him to is, uh, is Sun Tzu. I certainly wouldn't compare him to Clausewitz. Right, right, because he definitely had a lot more to say about Clausewitz. Yeah, than... yeah, and he, and he uh, basically, uh, uh, his, 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 his dissection of Clausewitz was, is really interesting. I was I was involved in that. I he got me to read the book. I read it carefully, read it twice, and and he read it and 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 he studied it. and we talked about it a lot. He talked with other people too, and I'm not the only one. And God knows I'm 
not passing myself as any kind of historian. I'm, I'm not. I'm an engineer by training. And to the extent that I've got any advanced skills, it's in bureaucratic infighting. <laughs> has nothing to do with, with uh, uh, military history. And uh, <clears throat> I, uh, he, he goes through, he, he's going through Clausewitz, and he finally gets to the point where, you know, he says Clausewitz had the fatal flaw that he didn't address the issue of, of increasing his opponent's friction. That's his central critique. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, when, when he first started raising that, I said, man, I see why you might say that, but I'm not sure you can get at it. It's, it's just, you know, and so we got in a bit of an argument over it. And, and, and uh, you know, he, he, once that happened, we got into this, he, he would go through picking out phrases in the book and everything. And, and I said, John, I think, I think you're just pushing this too far. And uh, he, uh, uh, he finally found this passage that just, you know, locked it, locked it down. In many ways, <clears throat> one of the things, now John didn't say this, this is me talking, but one of the things that you have with theoreticians of anything of Clausewitz's time and for the rest of the, of the uh, 19th century is that in order to achieve intellectual legitimacy in a subject, uh, they appealed to the advancement of scientific knowledge. That set the cultural tone for intellectual legitimacy, and it was basically Isaac Newton that did it. The other scientists, I mean, there were a whole bunch of them that came after Newton that fleshed a lot of the stuff out and made it made it more... Uh, uh, <clears throat> made it more uh, uh, elaborate, but but basically, if you look at modern social sciences, for example, or economics, they appeal. You can see the legacy of Newtonian thinking uh, in there, in the sense that they have reversible systems. One of the biggest problems in economics is explaining how things learn and do things differently. You basically have intersection of supply and demand and it goes up and down. That's basically Newtonian mechanics, or it's inspired by Newtonian mechanics. That's a better way of saying it. And Clausewitz uh, 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 is a little bit that way too. And one of the things that's interesting about Clausewitz is, as, as you probably know, he basically uh, almost disowned his book when he died. You know, he, had, he, only, he said the only, one, only book one is complete. You know, and his wife prepared the rest of it for publication. And, and there's some indication that he was having second thoughts about stuff, but no one knows what that is, what, what the second thoughts were. And uh, in, in one thing that, that, John was, that John sensitized me to, and I also uh, sort of teased it out, I'm not sure, I think I'd have to say it, it, John sensitized me to it, uh, is that Clausewitz in many ways anticipated the second law of thermodynamics uh, with the idea of friction and irreversibility that was in there. Now, he didn't get too much into the irreversibility. Now, the second law of thermodynamics brings that in big time. And uh, uh, he doesn't really talk about that in his briefing. Uh, but, but we talked about it a lot that, that, you know, in a way, that may have been what he realized he had a real problem because he was thinking in Newtonian terms, uh, I'm not saying he was thinking along the lines of Isaac Newton, but he, he was acculturated to think in Newtonian terms. And you have this concept of friction, which is a little bit like the second law of thermodynamics, mm-hmm. which is, is uh, 
uh, it's just sort of standing out there. If, if you look at the role, if you look at the place in scientific history of the second law of thermodynamics, it's, it's the eight ball uh, because it's, it's non-reversible. Everything else, Newton stuff, everything there was reversible. And second law was irreversible. And, and uh, uh, you know, life is irreversible. You're a different person than you were 10 years ago. Right. You know, and you can't go backwards. You can't, you can't go back to the way you, that outlook. That outlook conditions how you see things. But you can't go back and erase what's happened since then unless you've got some sort of psychological disorder. And uh, uh, so the second law, and one of the things scientists had a problem with back at that time was, this is a horrible law because it's, but maybe it's the fundamental law. You know, that it was, it was, the, it was like the eight ball. But on the one hand, it, it just, it was like a sore thumb. You couldn't get rid of it. And, and as we develop steam engines more and more, I mean, the science of thermodynamics, you know, advanced, it just got reinforced over and over again. And so Clausewitz, that, that may have been a source of Clausewitz's problem. Boyd and I talked about that. Uh, and, and I think he was the one who brought up that he may have, Clausewitz may have been anticipating indirectly without understanding it, the, the impact of the second law philosophically. Uh, and that may be why he was saying everything's wrong. Uh, it's a speculation. We'll never know. Right. Uh, but it's a fascinating speculation. It is. It, it, uh, uh, anyway, uh, if you go through Boyd's thing, he, he talks about Jomini. If you look at Patterns of Conflict and his discussion of Jomini, his discussion of Jomini is basically Im embedded in a critique that he was too formalized. You know? and, and the other thing, and, and Napoleon. You know, you go through the whole list and, and basically, you know, he didn't criticize Alexander the Great, but, you know, there wasn't much, much to, that, that was just sort of setting the stage. And, uh, uh, but by the time we get to the end, the only one he didn't take issue with in, in a little or a big way uh, was Sun Tzu. Hmm. So if I was going to put him in a pantheon of, of historians, I would, I would say he's a lot like Sun Tzu. Uh, his thinking's very much like Sun Tzu. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, well, he's the modern Sun Tzu. Uh, I wouldn't say he's better than Sun Tzu. Uh, but, but I would say he's, if, if Sun Tzu had a school, Boyd would be in that school. Right. Okay. So to, to your mind, why do you think some scholars today want to try to classify John Boyd as an air power theorist? Because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing because uh, what you have is uh, you have this guy who's a fighter pilot who basically uh, uh, he basically uh, uh, had all the outward attributes of a fighter pilot. Uh, and, you know, fighter pilots by definition, I mean, he's the only person I know of who was a fighter pilot that actually was a strategic thinker. You know, most fighter pilots are tactical. Uh, either for chasing women or doing dogfights, you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's just in the nature of the beast. And Boyd's the only one I know uh, who who behaved that way. Uh, he's also not a historian, and and uh, uh, his, historians are a club, uh, like any branch of science or academic discipline. 
And to have someone who's an outsider come in with a new idea or everything, he's obviously not qualified because he hasn't done all the shit I had to do to become a recognized historian. So part of it's that. And part of it is they just didn't have a clue what he was talking about because he didn't waste time with those people. If they didn't, you know, if, if they were interested in hearing him and they sat down, you know, he'd spend all the time in the world with them. He'll, he, he would do that with anybody who was willing to listen. But if they were just criticizing and, and being like that, he just said, the hell with them. Hopefully that will help set the record straight. And that's it for this time. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.